0: Good evening and welcome to Thieves' Monthly Movie Loot Halloween Edition Part 2. Today is a special day for terror and horror, cause it's election day. But here, let's take our minds off of stressful things and talk about serial killers, murderers, an uncertain future, and (laughs) baseball. Be afraid, be very afraid. Let's go.
1: A film with the number 10 in its title. No, it's against the law. Everything. Oh, no, that's that's all right. As long as nobody goes telling tales out of school, oh, sugar. No, I, I it's wouldn't. The moral question
0: that concerns me.
1: I wouldn't tell a soul, Mr. Christie, honestly. The,
0: the taking of life, no matter how rudimentary. While looking for a film with the number 10 for this challenge, I stumbled upon this film from 1971 called 10 Rillington Place and thought it was pretty darn good. I'm surprised I hadn't heard about it before. It is a British crime drama based on the true story of a serial killer called John Christie, who is played by Richard Attenborough here. Set in 1944, the film follows Christie as he targets a young couple, played by John Hurt and Judy Gison that rents an apartment from him. The film is directed by Richard Fleischer, who is perhaps more known for directing 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, The Vikings, Barabbas, Tora, 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 and Soil and Green. Like I said, I thought this film was really good. Fleischer keeps everything at a nice pace, and Hurt and Gison are pretty good. Hurt was actually nominated for a BAFTA award for his supporting performance, but Athenborough was the real star for me. He was great, chillingly calm, a very subtle performance. I read that he was actually reluctant to play the role of Christie, but accepted because of the statement the film makes about capital punishment. I also knew nothing about the story, so it caught me by surprise with the way things went down. It is very, very bleak and dark in more ways than one, which I found surprising. If I were to complain about anything, the film doesn't really delve that much into the psyche of Christie. It just focuses on the facts of the events, but it's still extremely tense and well executed. If anyone's interested, 10 Relinked Plays Place is currently on Prime, so check it out.
1: A film that features baseball prominently. Bill,
0: I know these guys. I know the way they think, and they will erase us.
1: And everything we've done here, none of it will matter. Any other team wins the World Series, good for them. They're drinking champagne, they get a ring. But if we win, on our budget with this team, we'll change the game. And that's what I want.
0: I want it to mean something. After a film about a real-life serial killer, I decided to go with something that to many people is way more horrific. Baseball. Now, but seriously, Major League Baseball celebrated the World Series during the month of October. By the way, congratulations to the Dodgers for their championship, so I decided to check out the critically acclaimed Moneyball from 2011, and what a pleasant surprise it turned out to be. The film follows Billy Bean, played by Brad Pitt, the general manager for the struggling Oakland Athletics, as he tries to rebuild the team using the then-unknown-and-maligned Sabre metrics, For those that don't know, Sabermetrics is a very in-depth mathematical analysis of in-game activity that focuses on getting players on base instead of star power. Although Sabermetrics were new, it didn't really gain mainstream popularity and acceptance until the events depicted on the film. So, as a fan of baseball, I enjoyed the hell out of this. Regardless of the liberties the film takes with the true story, it was a lot of fun. The film managed to be thrilling and fun without relying in cliché theatrics or melodrama. I know several people that are not necessarily baseball fans and still enjoy this. Pitt was so effortless and cool in the lead role. I really love to see him acting. Jonah Hill was pretty good as well as his assistant and the one that sells him on the use of the statistics. And of course, it's always a delight to see Philip Seymour Hoffman in any role in any film. Here he plays the coach of the athletics and he's great. I love how he's willing to play anything and always does excellently well. A bit of trivia I didn't know is that Steven Soderbergh was set to direct, but was replaced about a week before filming began, apparently due to creative differences. As a result, Bennett Miller and Adam Sorkin were brought in to direct and rework the script. I don't know how Soderbergh's version of this film would have been, probably good, but I have no complaints about the final result here. Moneyball is still on Netflix, in case anyone wants to check it out.
1: A horror film. Do you believe in God, John? Ever tried to look for him? i look for him in the unlikely things that happen little coincidences
0: a simple category but obviously it was october so my focus was mostly on horror films I saw The Black Coat's Daughter was available on Netflix, and remembered several people in the movie forums I frequent had mentioned it. So, thanks to those of you that brought it up, the film follows Kat and Rose, played by Kiernan Shipka and Lucy Boynton, two girls that are left stranded at their prep school during winter break. As time passes, they have to deal with their differences, their own personal issues, as well as rumors about the school nuns being satanists. Meanwhile, a separate storyline follows Joan, played by Emma Roberts, a young woman that's also trying to make her way to the school for unknown reasons. This film was effectively creepy. To be honest, I didn't feel it as the film progressed, at least not a lot, but after the film ended and I kept on thinking about it, damn it got under my skin something fierce. The film is pretty well acted, neatly shot, it makes great use of sound and ambience, and the story manages to pack a few surprises. The film is directed by Osgood Perkins, who I hadn't heard about, but is the son of actor Anthony Perkins, so he's no stranger to creepy and eerie films. So I'm intrigued now by his other films, but I'm also looking forward to rewatch this, which is usually a good sign. Like I said, Black Coat's Daughter is available on Netflix, so give it a try.
1: A film with the word dead or death in its title.
0: Two murders in a town no bigger than a postage stamp.
1: When you die in Potter's Bluff. Expect the unexpected. I just lie still. <laughs> I'm gonna give you something. It's gonna make you feel even better. Hell is going on in this town. A is loose out there. First murder, is now body snatching. I gotta believe it.
0: This was certainly a movie loot full of surprises. For this category, I went with 1981's Dead and Buried, which I had seen mentioned here and there, and it was indeed quite a surprise. The film follows Dan Gillis, played by James Valentino, a sheriff investigating a series of murders in his small coastal town of Potter's Bluff. He is assisted by Dobbs, played by Jack Albertson, an eccentric coroner and mortician. Aside from that, Dan has to also deal with some issues with his wife Janet, played by Melody Anderson. I think this is a film that's best served by knowing as little as you could but I'll just say that I thought it was a nice spin on several horror subgenres from the creepy small town subgenre to the slasher subgenre and so on. For those that are in for the gore and the kills they were indeed pretty good, scares were effective director Gary Sherman doesn't rely on repetition to keep us on our toes. First skills rely more on jump scares, surprise, and the slasher gore, while the others rely more on tension and dread. The special effects by Stan Winston nonetheless were impressive, and the performances were mostly good, especially by Albertson who plays the coroner and mortician. I think he stole most of the scenes he was in. And finally, the story managed to surprise me several times. I'm actually surprised that this film doesn't come up more often on horror film discussions. If you're interested in Dead and Buried, it is available on Voodoo, Tubi, and Shudder.
1: A film with a notable character from the clergy. Some people were born just so they could be buried. What I'm about to do, I do
0: because I have to. Not because I want to. October was Clergy Appreciation Month, so I wanted to see a film that featured a notable character from the clergy a priest, a nun, a pastor. I finally went with this year's The Devil All the Time. Sure, let's take a break from death and terror, I thought. 40 minutes in, I was, damn it! The film follows Arvin, played by Tom Holland, a young man that's living a tough life in Mid-East, USA, as he tries to protect himself and his family from various threats and dangers. The film is directed by Antonio Campos, who I hadn't heard of before this, and it's based on the novel of the same name, written by Donald Ray Pollock, who also provides the narration for the film. I had several issues with this film, but I'll say it was for the most part a competent drama thriller elevated by its performances. Unfortunately, I found most of its musings to be either superficial or empty. The story has a lot of characters and features many jumps back and forth in time or from character to character, which sometimes doesn't even feel necessary or just ends up feeling a bit meandering. Also, not all the pieces fit that well together into the story, particularly the one chosen for the last act, which feels pretty much stale. I also had some slight issues with the narration, but I respect that it was Pollock himself the one that provided it. It's just that I don't feel it added anything but the other way around. Anyway, despite all these criticisms, it's very well made in terms of performance, overall direction, cinematography, and the film is entertaining, but narratively, there's not much to bite at. The Devil All The Time is a Netflix original and is available on their site.
1: A horror film in a foreign language.
0: In this category, I had decided to check out 2016's The Wailing from South Korea, but clocking at almost three hours, I found it a bit hard to squeeze into my schedule. Meanwhile, I found an alternative in 1983's Angst from Austria. With a runtime of a little over an hour, it was perfect. The film follows a psychopath played by Erwin Leather, who is just released from prison only to go and commit another series of murders. The German term angst is roughly translated as anxiety, which is what we get from the main character as he prowls around streets and homes planning his next crime. The film is odd in that it's told and narrated from the point of view of the killer as he narrates the mental process he's going through as he gets out, while still feeling the urge to kill. As it is, it's a disturbing look into the mind of a murderer, and there are a couple of visuals that might make you wince and fidget in your seat, but the lack of personality in the victims and their awkwardly emotionless performances take a bit from the overall effect. Leather is great though, and the direction of Gerard Karg is impressive. I've read bits and pieces about how Karg used a camera that was somehow strapped to Leather's back to give the sense of being right next to his head, and the effect is chaotically effective. Apparently, Gaspar Noé was heavily inspired by this film, and although I've only seen Irreversible from him, I think you can see that inspiration right away. If you're interested, Angst is available on Prime, Tubi, and Shudder.
1: A film from the 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die list whose ranking includes the number 10.
0: We live in interesting, exciting, and anxious times. Don't
1: be too sure of progress. Well, what's going to stop progress nowadays? War. There is war. And the rumour of war. The unknown aircraft passed over Sea Beach and dropped bombs...
0: If you remember, in episode 23, I already discussed The Phantom Carriage, which I saw for this category, but I had also seen that 1936 Things to Come was available, and upon reading about it, I knew I wanted to see it. The film is set in an alternate timeline where World War II becomes a decades-long war that ravages the population and the world as a whole. Things to Come is a weirdly interesting sci-fi film that follows the attempts of humanity to retake control of their future. The events of the film span a whole century, but a lot of the focus falls on John Cabal, played by Raymond Massey, a businessman turned pilot that's trying to steer the events in favor of humanity. As you watch the film, you can see why it was groundbreaking for its time and a must-watch. There's an evident grandeur to its scope and special effects. The effects are particularly impressive. There's a montage towards the end that covers the progress from past to future, and it is impressive. Unfortunately, the decades-long timeline also ends up limiting the emotional attachment one might have to its characters. This is primarily noticed in the last act, which ends up being pretty weak. As it is, the film is more focused in saying what it needs to say than in drawing us into it. But there's still some worth to it. Things to Come is available on Prime and the Criterion channel. Check it out.
1: A film from Nigeria. There is an old folk tale that when the goddess Araromiri wanted to come to the earth, she asked the priest to bring her forth from the back of a cursed tree.
0: Nigeria celebrated its independence in October so I wanted to check out one of their films. The Nigerian film industry, also referred to as Nollywood, has had several booming moments since the late 19th century. There was a boom in the 60s, then the 90s, and then the late 2000s, which is when The Figurine came out. The Figurine is a Nigerian supernatural thriller released in 2009. It follows a duo of friends that find a figurine of a goddess, Mire, which apparently grants them seven years of prosperity and wealth. However, the tail end of the curse means that'll be followed by seven years of death and tragedy. I thought this film was surprisingly competent and well executed. The performances of the two friends, played by Ramsey Noah and Kunle Afolayan, who is also the director, are pretty solid. The story also has a nice pace. I mean, it takes its time to build things up, but I never found it boring or lagging, and it still packs a few surprises in the end. I don't think it's perfect, you can still see the low budget in parts of the production, it's still a bit rough around the edges, but I enjoyed it quite a bit. The figurine was a critical and commercial success and is credited with reinvigorating Nigerian cinema at the time. The film is available on Netflix, they have a significant section of Nigerian cinema, so give one of these films a chance.
1: Freebies for the kids Sometimes at night, that comes out of my fish tank.
0: Feels like it's coming to get me, but mom says it's just a nightmare.
1: I actually know a lot about nightmares.
0: You do? Yeah.
1: Sometimes they feel real. But there's no such thing as monsters. What's up, Rhode Island? You and I are about to unleash your nightmares on the world.
0: For Halloween, we wanted to see Monster House with the kids, which is a favorite of ours. Unfortunately, we couldn't find it streaming free, so my wife picked a Netflix original called A Babysitter's Guide to Monster Hunting. The film follows Kelly, played by Tamara Smart, a babysitter that finds herself fighting against otherworldly creatures that want to steal the nightmares from the kids she's taking care of. The creatures are led by Grand Wignoll, played by Tom Felton, who does his best Beetlejuice impression for the role. Kelly, on the other hand, is aided in the journey by a seasoned babysitter, played by Una Lawrence, that shows her the ropes. The film, which was written by Joe Ballarini, is based on his trilogy of books of the same name. Overall, it was fun and well-made. At times, I felt as if Felton was trying too hard to channel Beetlejuice, but he was okay. The whole vibe of it feels very Disney Channel, but anyway, the kids like it, and I wasn't bored by it, which I suppose it's what's all about.
1: A film with a farm animal in its title. You see a lot, doctor. When are you strong enough to point that high-powered perception at yourself? What about it? Why don't you Why don't you look at yourself and write down what you see? Or maybe you're. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti.
0: World Farm Animals Day was in October too, so I was looking for a film with a farm animal in its title, you know, chicken, cow, horse, etc. But I ended up settling with the rewatch of a personal favorite, the Silence of the Lambs. As most of you know, the film follows FBI trainee Clarice Starling, played by Jodie Foster, as she is tasked by her boss to question imprisoned killer Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins, in an effort to capture another serial killer dubbed Buffalo Bill. I mean, what can we say about this film that hasn't been said before? It's pretty much complete perfection. Every performance is on point, from Foster and Hopkins to Scott Glenn and Ted Levine, who play Clarice's boss and Buffalo Bill, respectively. Anthony Hill is wickedly good as Dr. Frederick Chilton, Lecter's main tormentor. Jonathan Demme's direction is great. The editing is precise. The script and dialogue is excellent. The exchanges between Clarice and Lecter are pure gold. The sequence when Lecter escapes and the climatic encounter in the end are so perfectly directed and edited. It's just too much. This is easily on my top 20 of all time. So that's all for a scary month. November is already in, and these are the categories I've chosen for this month a film with the number 11 in its title, any film that starts with the letters U or V, a film from the 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die list whose ranking includes the number 11, a film from the 2000s, a thriller, a film noir, a film about politics, a film from Palestine, a film considered one of the worst ever, a film from Martin Scorsese, a film about the occult, a film about Thanksgiving, a film with the words Black or Friday in its title, a film about or set on Mars, and a film from Puerto Rico. So as usual, if you have any recommendation for any of these categories, let me know. You can find me via Twitter at TiffCGT or Letterboxd as tif 12 I'd like to close with this. Last week we found out about the passing of Sir Sean Connery, The Scottish actor, who reached international fame when he became the first actor to play super spy James Bond, had been retired for about 15 years. Aside from Bond, he left his legacy in countless of great, iconic films like Alfred Hitchcock's Marnie, The Hunt for Red October, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, The Rock, and The Untouchables, for which he won an Academy Award. But aside from those well-known and popular roles, I would like to recommend Michael Krishton's The First Great Train Robbery from 1978, a film that I found to be a lot of fun and very enjoyable, in great part thanks to the charismatic performances from Connery and his co-star Donald Sutherland. So if you had the chance, check it out. That's it. It's over. Episode 24 of Thief's Monthly Movie Loot is done. Once again, thanks to all of you for listening and hope you all have a great day. Whatever happens today, remember that we're all in this world together. So be happy. No
1: fate. No fate but what we make. Okay. The whole thing goes. The future's not set. There's no fate but what we make for ourselves.